You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So this week, we're going to therapy specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as other therapies that can have a huge positive benefit for menopausal women. Cognitive behavioral therapy has come up a lot on this show. In my conversation with Dr. Jen Gunter, author of The Menopause Manifesto, she told me that cognitive behavioral therapy can help women deal with disruptive symptoms like hot flashes, almost as well as other therapies can. And in my show with sleep scientist, Dr. Sophie Bostock, she talked about how cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia can work wonders for helping women improve their sleep. In fact, a 2018 study found it worked better than other interventions, including hormone and antidepressant therapy for helping menopausal women treat insomnia. But if I'm honest, I didn't really know what cognitive behavioral therapy was. And I figured if I didn't know, I probably wasn't alone. So I called up this week's guest, Dr. Alicia Bross, a licensed psychologist and founding partner of the Boulder Center for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapies, because that seemed like someone who would know what it was. (laughs) She specializes in behavioral therapies for mood, anxiety, and sleep disorders. She is also the co-author of End the Insomnia Struggle, a step-by-step guide to help you get to sleep and stay asleep. I'll tell you, I came away from this conversation much clearer about CBT and other therapies. And honestly, I think it's something that we athletic women can use in every aspect of our lives and probably already do. I mean, who hasn't reframed their suffering at mile 19 of a marathon or 65 pull-ups into the MRF? I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did and maybe pursue uh, some cognitive behavioral therapy for yourself. I know... I have been looking more into it and trying to reframe some of my own anxiety these days, and it does really help. On a side note, Dr. Bross will be one of our presenters at the live Menopause Summit this September. So if you're coming to Boulder, September 23rd through the 26th, you can see her there. Okay, before we get to the show quick weekly reminder to come join us on our social media channels. We are at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We also have the private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook channel where you can join 6,500 women at this point and ask anything that's on your mind. And if you want to deep dive into all things active menopausal living, we have the Feisty Menopause membership where we offer in-depth materials, expert webinars, and sponsor discounts. You can learn all about that, as well as our upcoming summit at feistymenopause.com. And if you have any ideas for guests or you want to drop me a line, you can find me at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. Finally, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for the stars and the hearts and the great reviews. The show is continuing to grow. It's on a wonderful trajectory. And it's all because of you, your sharing, your rating, your reviewing makes all the difference in the world. And it warms my heart. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, enough of me. Let's have a quick word from our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. 
Women who ride bikes, and I am most certainly one of them, know that finding women's cycling clothing can be an exercise in frustration, right? And that's why I am so psyched that one of my favorite women-owned and operated clothing companies, Velarosa, has come on as a sponsor of Hit Play, Not Pause. Velarosa's kits feature bold, beautiful, colorful prints and patterns. And the collections, which I really love, are designed so you can mix and match the coordinating pieces to get more mileage out of your cycling wardrobe. Best of all, they fit like a dream. The chamois is super comfortable and perfectly placed. The yoga waistband hugs your midsection without digging in anywhere. And the leg bands are like 100% functional and flattering with no squeezy sausage leg effect that is a big nope for me. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, Velarosa's got you covered beautifully. And now, thanks to their sponsorship, Hit Play Not Pause listeners can get 15% off their first order at VelarosaCycling.com. Just enter the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's VelarosaCycling.com, the code HITPLAY for 15% off. So go get some sweet Velarosa cycling clothing today. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests. And their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you, it works. Thank you very much for being on the show. I... Um, you know, as I mentioned to you in some of our correspondence leading into this show, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, comes up a lot. Like it comes up an awful lot. Like Dr. Jan Gunter talked about it as nearly she paralleled it to hormone therapy, you know, menopausal hormone therapy. And I don't know if that's hyper, you know, I'm not sure. But Dr. Sophie Bostock talked about it glowingly for sleep, you know, and when you dig into some of the literature in PubMed, it, it comes up you know, that, that it does seem to have quite the effect. And, and that makes sense since our mind is such a powerful thing and I'm preaching to choirs here, but 
you know, the, the, the glaring, the glaring hole, I believe when we talk about this in my mind too, is what is it? Mm-hmm. Right? Like what exactly is it? It's, it sounds like it's just sort of changing your viewpoint and, but is it that simple? I mean, like, you tell us, <laughs> right. what is cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. So, so let's start actually with talking about the model or the rationale, which is where we start the treatment. So if I were seeing you for therapy after our initial assessment, the first thing I'd want to do is introduce you to the model that underlies CBT, because that provides that rationale or framework, which will then lead us into talking about specific strategies. Okay. Okay. So starting with the model. The basic idea is that we often talk as if situations lead to feelings. For example, I could say, oh, I'm preparing for this interview and I feel nervous, right? But it's I've not- got a race this morning. I am out of my mind with nerves. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's not actually the situation that makes us feel that way. It's the way we think about it or interpret it. It's our beliefs, right? So if I am preparing for this interview and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, am I going to be able to cut it? She's had so many really esteemed, articulate people on the show. I don't deserve to be on this platform that I'm going to feel really anxious. But if I'm thinking, oh, I'm so looking forward to this opportunity. Celine's a great interviewer. I've really enjoyed listening and preparation for this. And this is going to be a fun conversation. And it's in line with my values around disseminating this really powerful research-supported treatment that I'm going to feel excited. Two sides of the same coin almost, right? Like, 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 ner- I, and I, I started to try to frame that you're speaking, like I had to do this on myself because I was too stubborn probably to get sports psychology at the time. I should have, but like, I almost threw up almost all the time before races, like super terrible nerves, like unbelievable, catastrophic thinking. If I blow this race, my career is over. No one will listen to me advice. I mean, I could go on and on. Yes. We're going to lose the house. I mean, it's just like, it just goes beyond anything that's reasonable. But I see people that were stoked, like generally stoked. And I'm like, how are they so excited? And I'm so miserable. And it, it seemed to me that it was the same energy, but funneled differently. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point because even when you're talking about anxiety versus excitement, the physiology is largely the same. Like if you ask somebody who is anxious what they were feeling in their body, their heart rate's going faster, they might be a little bit sweatier, clammy, or and if you ask somebody who's super excited, they're likely to say the same thing. And it's really about the way they're appraising it. Mm-hmm. Are they perceiving threat, then they're going to feel they're going to label it anxiety. Right. If they're perceiving challenge or um, novelty or uh, a chance for achievement, they're going to maybe experience it more as excitement. Right. Which is what you just outlined beautifully going into this, like before talking, am I, how I'm, how am I perceiving what's ready to happen? Right. So, but that's just the cognitive part of CBT. So we still need to talk about the B part, but let me say one more thing about the cognitive part. So what I was saying so far is that it's not the situation that makes you feel a certain way. It's the way you think about it, but it's also the case that however you're feeling already is likely to influence how you're thinking. So if somebody's depressed, then they are going to perceive more situations more negatively. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if they go into a particular situation from a place of optimism, they're more likely to see that particular situation through that optimistic lens. That makes a lot of sense. So if you're already really anxious or um, agitated, you know, for example, then you're more likely to see threat in the next situation. Okay. So that's the thought feeling connection. But the other thing that CBT really focuses on is the behavior feeling connection Mm-hmm. So with every emotion that we're hardwired to experience, we have an urge to act in a certain way. So anxiety motivates us to try to avoid potential danger. It tells us, hey, warning, there could be danger out there. And then it motivates us to try to mitigate that danger. Right. Anger motivates us to protect our rights or the rights of others right? Or to protect against an injustice, for example. Um, So the thing is, though, if we do what an emotion tells us to do, it can feed that emotion. Right, right. right. So if I'm anxious about this interview, then I want to avoid thinking about it. And so then maybe I don't prepare for it. (laughs) And then it's right around the corner. And I'm even more anxious because I'm not prepared. Or maybe I avoid it altogether and I say no to your invitation. And then guess what? The next time somebody invites me. So in the short term, I get some relief. Oh, good. I dodged a bullet. I don't have to do this public speaking thing. But the next time somebody approaches me, I feel even more anxious because I didn't get any new learning that, oh, I can manage this. Right, right, right. right. So when we do what an emotion tells us to do, it feeds that emotion. If I'm irritable and I act snarky, it's actually going to make me feel more irritated. Then if I kind of act more calm, patient, then maybe I feel. Okay, so here's the thing with CBT. So if if your listeners could see me, they would see me holding up a Uh, my fingers in a triangle. So you've got this triangle of thoughts, feelings, behaviors that are all interconnected. And generally when people are seeking therapy, they want some relief from distressing feelings. They want to feel less anxious or stressed or irritable or depressed or sad. Or sometimes they're looking for some resolution on changing a situation that they have ambivalence about. Should I get divorced or not? Should I change career paths? Is it time to retire as a professional athlete and move into this other phase of life, right? Um, Regardless, what we and so we can't change the feelings directly. I can't say to you, you know, it's just a race, just calm down. (laughs) People try. (laughs) (laughs) And what you probably want to do is slap them when they say calm down. And if you try to tell yourself that, it doesn't work either because. Really, if we could change our feelings directly, there'd be no field of mental health, right? But because of this intimate connection between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, we can impact the way we feel by changing the way we think and by changing what we do. So in CBT, the cognitive part is looking at your attitudes, beliefs, thoughts, and you used the term catastrophizing. So that would be an example. We might help you identify that this is a catastrophic thought that you're equating your performance in this race to financial stability and having a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. And can we actually identify is there maybe at least a little bit of a distortion in here? <laughs> what might be a more accurate way of thinking about this? 
we're not going for overly optimistic Pollyanna because you won't believe that. Mm-hmm. It's just that we all distort our thinking and the more amped up our emotions are, the more prone we're going to be to that distortion being even greater. So we want to identify and correct that distortion to try to get some relief. Won't make your anxiety go away entirely, but that might ratchet it down from a 90 to a 70, which might keep you from vomiting. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then we also want to work with the behaviors. So if doing what a mood or emotion tells you to do feeds it, then we can do the opposite to get some relief from it. Mm-hmm. Now, if I need to feel anxious because the roads are super icy and it really is dangerous for me to drive, then I don't want to just get rid of my anxiety and go out and drive on icy roads. I want to listen to my anxiety. But if I have a sense that my anxiety is out of proportion to the actual threat, then instead of avoiding the thing that makes me anxious, I want to do the opposite. I want to approach it. I want to expose myself. So if you're super anxious in competition, rather than limiting your competitions, you want to try to expose yourself and do more competitions, right? Um, So we call that opposite emotion action. And we use different terms depending on what we're treating. So for depression, which we haven't talked about yet, what people tend to do is shut down, isolate, hibernate. It's like they're trying to conserve energy, um, keep themselves from being kicked when they're down. Um, And so they tend to withdraw. And so the opposite is to activate. And our treatment, our behavioral treatment for depression is called behavioral activation. Mm-hmm. Our behavioral treatment for anxiety is generally called exposure therapy. Okay. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. So where that makes a ton of sense, but when, you know, and when I know we shared some of the literature on hot flashes, vasomotor symptoms, you know, some of the menopause stuff. Where does that come into play there? Because you're feeling you are having a hot flash, right? I mean, like something or is it something that is triggering that? I mean, where is it a chicken and egg thing happening? Are you reframing it so you're not exacerbating it? I would put it more that way that. um, So first, there hasn't been a ton of research on this, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. Which means that it's hard to draw too many conclusions. What I saw was that it didn't come to behavioral therapy for perimenopausal women didn't actually decrease the number of hot flashes or night sweats, but decrease the amount of distress associated or dysfunction associated with those experiences. So I feel a little pulled or a lot pulled to, um, So I practice a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy, which we just talked about, and something called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, which is also a behavioral treatment. And when you ask that question about how does that come into hot flashes, my mind goes a little bit more to the ACT. Um, So I just want to acknowledge for your listeners that what I'm about to say is more of a blend of traditional CBT and this other therapy that's very related, but not exactly traditional CBT. Perfect. We can explain that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So let's imagine you have a hot flash. What's one way you could be thinking as that's coming on. Oh my God, here it comes again. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Oh shit. Um, 
Yeah. So now you have not only the discomfort of how you're feeling in your body, Mm -hmm. but you also have the added suffering of this dialogue of, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Yeah. Right. Um, Whereas if you experience the hot flash and maybe you've practiced some skills so that you're more of an objective observer of that. Oh, look at that. My thermoregulation really is off. They weren't kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Or, oh, I'm curious. Am I starting to notice a pattern in what's triggering this? Or, oh, yeah, of course I should have expected this. I had a glass of wine and it's such and such at night. And I've learned that's kind of my pattern. So if there can be a more, I'm going to say detached, I don't necessarily mean that there's no emotion, but if there can be more of a curiosity or an observational stance as opposed to a judgmental stance then you're not as likely to have well you're not going to be as uncomfortable emotionally um but this is where we don't have data to support it i'm going to suggest though that yes it also can keep from exacerbating it so if i can just use a a parallel or or an uh yeah parallel situation if for example you're really cold like I have Raynaud syndrome. So when it's cold out my fingers and toes, it's not just a little uncomfortable. Right? Yeah. No, they turn white. I, I know people who I ride yeah. with people who have it. Yeah. yeah. So if I'm out in the cold, it's very, very natural for my body, anybody's body to clench and maybe even shiver. Right. Um, and sometimes the shiver response is really adaptive, but lots of times not so much. It doesn't actually help when I'm clenching my whole body it doesn't actually help my fingers and my toes. And in fact, it increases my overall discomfort. So even though it's a natural response, it's not particularly useful. And if I can intentionally bring my focus to relaxing my body and saying, okay, I'm cold, I'll get indoors soon, or maybe I can put on some more gloves because I have some here in my bag or whatever it is, um, then I'm not going to exacerbate the discomfort. So same here, if you have a hot flash. Now it also can happen where you're anticipating it, right? Like, oh, what if I'm up there giving my talk at this summit and, oh no, what if I have a hot flash? Just anticipating it, being worried about it. Again, I don't have any evidence to suggest it makes it more likely you will have it, but you're certainly inviting discomfort as opposed to going into it saying, if it happens, it happens. This is, this is reminds me a lot of, I I did a I was working with a pain researcher. He he wanted to write a book and I spent some time with him and the book didn't happen but boy I learned a lot about the origins of pain and nocebos and you know all the ho- but that that and Kelly Starrett on the show talked about that too. He's like if your knee hurts it means your knee hurts. It doesn't mean you're injured. It doesn't mean that there's maybe anything structurally wrong with the joint. It means your knee hurts. And just that knowledge sometimes makes people feel less pain because their brain just kind of calms down. And it's like, okay, maybe it's not like it, it just, it's very, very interesting because it's just information, right? Like your, your body is giving you information so you can act on it. And maybe your hips are tight. Do you know, I mean, and that has that, that bit of knowledge benefited me. I cannot tell you how much in my athletic career. But it's so important that you just said that it's information because you also don't want to ignore it. That's what leads to worse injuries. Right. You want to do something with it. Right. It's exactly the same with uncomfortable emotions, right? We don't want to ignore the anxiety. We do want to say, oh, 
I'm getting this communication that maybe there's threat. Let me take a look at it. How threatening is it actually? And then what action do I need to take? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, and I, I think that when you're, when you're looking, when you're looking at, at women who, you know, we're, we're, we're more susceptible to many of these emotions because of the hormonal fluctuation and because, you know, there's levels of cortisol aren't being, you know, we don't, we don't have the hormones that keep everything tamped down, you know, so the, the temperature gets turned up like literally in our head. And <laughs> I think being able to work, we, we talk all about working with your physiology. I, I believe that working with your emotional physiology, if you will, is important too. And that's what you're talking about, right? Absolutely. And just to give another, so we don't want to invalidate the emotion. That's part of it. Totally. I don't think that is what you're saying at all. But we do want again, to be able to step back and, and study it. And so I'll give you another example. Um, Sometimes women have clear pattern. Well, they're not always clear at first, but they can become clear, clear fluctuations in their mood around their menstrual cycle. And oftentimes before they've learned that, they don't realize until after. So they were really irritable for a few days, then they get their period and they say, oh, right. This was my typical PMS stuff. And then the next month comes, they get irritable for a few days and it's not until they get their period that they say, oh, right. That was me for like 40 years. (laughs) I'd be like, I am I impending doom. I feel like burning the house down. What is wrong? My career is done. You, you can probably sense trends here. And then I'd be like, oh, I got my period. <laughs> right? So so if you realize that pattern, so I'll sometimes have women put a note in their calendar or color code if they use maybe an app to track certain things to color code the days before they expect their period. Now, does it keep them from being irritable? No, but If they can say, and I'm saying irritable, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's anxious. If they can say, oh, right, I'm more irritable. It's because I'm expecting my period. This is hormone speaking. Then they can get a little distance and not necessarily act on it. Maybe not be as snippy with their partner, et cetera, et cetera. And then it doesn't compound the difficulty and they can have compassion right? It's more like, wow, this is really hard to be so irritable and let me not make things worse by acting on it. I know I'll get relief in a couple of days. And maybe I do want to talk to my OBGYN or my PCP about these fluctuations and see if there's anything I can do about it. So yeah, recognizing the patterns, being able to step back, observe with compassion rather than judgment, Um, but also then not having to get as triggered by it, not having to act in accordance with those emotions. Right. And, and to be, to be clear, cause you started talking about, was it act therapy that, that you use? Like, what does that stand for? Yeah. So it stands for acceptance and commitment therapy. Okay. And it's abbreviated though, as you said, to act, not ACT, cause it's meant to be action oriented. Okay. Yep. <laughs> And it's also a behavioral therapy and it also works with thoughts and behaviors, but in a slightly different way than CBT. Do you want me to yeah, say? Yeah, please, please. Okay. Cause I'm very curious. Yeah. Yeah. So with thoughts in CBT, again, we're looking at the content of your thoughts. Oh, you're catastrophizing. You're thinking that your performance today is going to have this huge impact on blah, blah, blah. 
from an act perspective, instead of looking at the content of your thoughts, we're looking more at your relationship to your thoughts or your thought process. Okay. So um, mindfulness training, which I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with. That comes up a lot too. Yeah. So that would be one example of a skill taught in act to help people be a more objective observer of their mind or their thoughts. So if you're pre-race and you're feeling really anxious, instead of having to say, now, is this really going to lead to me being homeless? You can instead with the act skills say, oh, look at that. My mind is doing that thing that it does. I don't need to buy into this, nor do I need to discredit it. Can I just notice that my mind got super busy here? Right, right. Okay. And a lot of my clients are um, super smart and super analytical and they're in their head way too much already. And so the cognitive restructuring, which is what we call what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy can at times backfire because it gets them even more in their head if that's what they have to do all the time. Whereas with ACT, it's more about getting them out of their mind. Interesting. Okay. And into their life. And so we might use the cognitive restructuring occasionally for threads or themes that come up a lot, but I might day to day more want them to be practicing something that we call cognitive diffusion, stepping back from their thoughts, noticing, oh, there's worry. Thanks, mind. I'm going to listen to you right now. Or, oh, that's depression talking. I don't need to listen to it. Behaviorally, remember in CBT, I said we do opposite emotion action. Mm-hmm. So if you're depressed, you activate. If you're anxious, you approach. Um, in ACT, it's more about getting the emotions out of the driver's seat and saying, well, what do I really want to have guide my action? Oh, I want it to be my values. So I feel irritable. And what kind of partner do I want to be in this moment? Or what kind of parent do I want to be in this moment? Oh, I want to be patient. I don't feel patient. But I want to act patient. Right, right. Or, oh, it's a value of mine to disseminate these evidence-based treatments and to have it have these treatments be more available to the masses. So let me act on that value by accepting your invitation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than really considering whether it makes me anxious or excited. Like maybe that's not as relevant as what right. is really important to me. Yeah. So before I have a couple, I have a couple different questions, but I, I think I want to at this point circle to sleep because yeah. I want to talk because that comes up a lot. And mm-hmm. both of these things you're talking about seem like they could be very, very useful to calming mm-hmm. the mind and doing all the things that, that women need to do everybody, but like sleep becomes so disrupted during this time. Right. And because yeah. of all the fluctuations. So, and I know that you do deal with sleep. So, um, what is in your practice, what is your approach to improving uh, these kind of sleep disruptions, whether it be falling asleep, staying asleep? Yeah. So kind of behavioral therapy for insomnia is definitely the treatment of choice. It has great research support. Um, and I make use of the act to help people actually do it because CBT for insomnia is challenging. And people are really exhausted, they're frustrated, they're scared. By the time they sleep, they seek treatment for sleep, like they're pretty worn down, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's And right. then we ask them in CBT to do some really hard things like, hey, don't stay in bed awake. Leave the bedroom and go and read until you've settled down. Doesn't have to be reading, but um, and then go back to bed. Or, hey, you're spending eight hours in bed, but you're only getting six hours of sleep. I'm gonna have you only spend six hours in bed. This is really hard for people to do by the time they get to treatment for insomnia. So for me anyway, I'm using the act to, I would say do two main things. One, help circumvent the hurdles to doing the treatments because working on greater acceptance of what is um, can help facilitate that ability. Um, And then two, is to decrease that arousal that comes with the fear of not sleeping. Yes. So the more I can get somebody to say, yes, absolutely. Sleep is important. And I want to be striving towards more reliable and healthy sleep overall. However, on this one particular night, whatever happens, happens. I'm going to set myself up for good sleep, but I can't force it. Unlike most things in life, the more effort I put in, the more elusive sleep becomes, right? It's not conducive to trying, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right, Um, right. We need to really surrender to the night. So we want to use the CBT strategies to help people get their circadian rhythm more in, um, in balance or in rhythm. We want to use the CBT strategies to break some cycles of insomnia but then I want to use acceptance and willingness from act or mindfulness and cognitive diffusion to help calm down the hyper arousal that they might be experiencing because of the way they're judging their insomnia, how they're reacting to it. Which, I, which I'm hearing that might be the, the first step that act might be, it I'm hearing have- almost that act sort of nudges the door open for CBT, CBT. Is that, that's certainly how I and my colleague, um, Dr. Colleen Ernstrom, we co-authored a workbook that does exactly that. And really the behavioral strategies of CBT are the bread and butter of what's going to help with sleep. Okay. However, when somebody is super cognitively aroused and anxious about doing it, we have to target that. So our book is actually structured where we first do the education because that's a huge part of anything we treat is helping people understand what they're experiencing. And then we have one chapter on that acceptance or willingness because so many people do need that first. Then we go into the behavioral strategies. Then we circle back to the cognitive and the other act strategies. But sometimes people come into my office and they're actually not that, they wanna get more sleep. Um, but they're just like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Yeah. Um, and they're really not as anxious as others. And then we can dive right into the behavioral strategies. What is the book? It's called End the Insomnia Struggle. Oh, okay. Yeah. It has some subtitle, like how to get to sleep and stay asleep or you know, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, I'll put a note to the, in the show notes for that. Um, Great. We'll get back to the show in just a moment. But first, I want to share more exciting news, in case you didn't hear, about our Menopause Summit coming up this September. Along with our virtual summit presentations, there is going to be a live and in-person component in Boulder, Colorado. The live summit will run from September 23rd through the 26th. We'll have educational and practical knowledge sessions, 
on all the topics you'd expect, performance, nutrition, symptom management, mindset, hormones, and more, as well as a lot of fun outdoor activities like hikes, bike rides, swimming, trail runs, yoga sessions, and more. You'll also have the opportunity to meet up with experts with bodywork, bike fit, and of course, we'll have a few happy hours and meet and greets. And right now, for listening, you can get $50 off registration just by tuning into this podcast. That's right. Listeners of the show get 50 bucks off the live event. Just go to feistymenopause.com, click on the Menopause Summit tab in the upper right-hand corner, and use the coupon code HITPLAY, all caps. Again, $50 off the live event with the code HITPLAY, one, that's one word, all caps. If you can't join us live, totally get it. You can still come and buy tickets for the virtual summit and you'll get everything. In fact, everybody gets anything. Whether you come to join us in Boulder or you tune in to the virtual, everybody will have access to all the sessions that will be recorded and you'll be able to view that content until the end of the year on December 31st. So go to feistymenopause.com, read all about our sessions and speakers, learn more, come join us live, come join us virtually, whatever way you can. But if you're listening now and you want to come and spend some time with us in Boulder, live and in person, now is your time to get $50 off the registration. Hit play, all caps. I hope to see you there. Let's get back to the show. Is this a, once you, once you start practicing any of this, is this a daily practice for all time or are you building, you know, there's all these analogies about your brain, like you build new, new, new paths and they become entrenched in the snow, just like the other path, you know, I've heard all these different analogies to like the pathways in your brain. Is it the kind of thing that you need to practice and practice and practice and then they become new pathways, you know, or how long does it take? What does that look like? It really depends. Um, once in a while you see somebody who you just explain the model and it gives them this clarity and they can really go into that more objective self and see their thoughts and not get wrapped up in them. And, and it doesn't take a lot of practice at all, but that's rare. More often, as you were suggesting, they do have quite a pathway. It's very habitual to be thinking in a particular way. Um, and then they're going to practice the skills again and again and again. And then it's going to become less and less effortful. And so you could think of that as, okay, new pathway is more well-developed. And oftentimes then they're going to encounter some new period of really high stress. And their mind may go back to more of the old pathway and they're gonna have to increase their effort again. So the tools, the skills are still there and they need to more consciously apply them. So you may have some, so for example, one of our strategies for people who are very worry prone is something called designated worry time. And it's a great strategy. And when people start, they really are gonna benefit from doing it every day. And then at some point, they're going to be able to transition to doing it more, quote, as needed. Oh, I have more anxiety or, or worry right now. 
um, let me go ahead and use designated worry time. And then there might be a time where they haven't used it for months. And then they find that they're drifting back into a lot of old patterns or habits of worrying a lot, maybe because of some new stressors. Um, and then they might say, oh yeah, doesn't a worry time help me in the past? Let me start doing that daily again for a week and just remind myself of this tool or the skill. And then it might become less effortful again. How many hours a day should I block off for my designated worry time? <laughs> you can start with 10 minutes, believe it. Okay. <laughs> and there is a whole chapter. I love designated worry time because it works okay. so well. Um, there is a whole chapter on it in that book that I referenced too. And then there are also lots of other resources on designated worry And it time. is as it sounds. Like you were just telling your brain, like, now is your time. Like, what do we want to worry about? You're setting time aside, you're setting a timer, and then you're doing precisely that. You're saying, okay, mind, where do you need to go? This is your time to worry. But you're trying to really keep it to worry. So when you start to problem solve or strategize, you say, no, 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 you can do that later. This is my 10 minutes to just worry. Okay. And the other thing about worry is that people who are real worriers tend to jump from one worry to another. Oh, yeah. Right. And yeah. so before you jump from worry A to worry B, when you start to jump to worry B, you say, wait, 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 mind, are you sure you're done with worry A? Because this is your chance. Like really worry that one to death. Oh, you are done. Okay. Now you can go on to worrying about your kid's health or, you know, how you're going to pay the bills next month or how you're going to perform in this particular performance, but worry one thing at a time go on to the next, go on to the next, the timer goes off. You know what you're going to do next. Cause you don't want to just stay in that place of worry. That's not very productive. So maybe you have a plan that right after that, you're going to make lunch or that's when you're expecting somebody to come home and you're going to get into conversation or that's when you're going to um, go for a walk with the dog, you know, knowing what you're going to do next. And then all other times a day. So part one is the worry time. Part two is that all other times of day, you want to become more adept at noticing when you're worrying and saying, oh, there's worry. Mind, you can absolutely worry, but now is not the time. You already had some designated time today and you'll have more tomorrow. Can you take action during those times? I mean, obviously, if there's something that is worrying you, I mean, sometimes it's just because we're look, our brain seemingly is just looking for stuff to worry about, right? Uh, but sometimes there's there is there's something underlying that if you took an action you could stop that worrying. Absolutely. So it's not like we're worrying about frivolous things that only get minutes a day and then we don't even think about it outside of that. Outside of that, when you're worrying, you're delaying the worry. But you can absolutely engage in productive problem solving, planning, strategizing. It's just the worry that you're trying. Right. To- we're going to put that worry aside. I that that I that I understand. But having, uh, said that, but having said that, if it's 3 a.m., that's probably not the best time to be problem solving either. Right. <laughs> so neither still- of those things, really. I mean, I mean, I, I'm hopefully I mean, one of the things that has come up a few times on the show. And, and I've heard actually from some people who who have said, wow, that really did work for me, is that when they started practicing different elements of this mindfulness, you know, taking I think Sophie Bostock talked about taking 10 minutes and just looking out the window and letting your thoughts do whatever. And it was, it was a mindful thing that when it came time to let their brain settle down at night, the brain was practiced in doing that. So it wasn't the first time in the day 
that the brain was like, oh, look, it's quiet time. It's time for me. Let's talk to you. You know, so it, it was uh, it's interesting. Right. And this isn't a problem that's unique to today. But if you think about it, we have even less time where we are quiet because even online at the grocery store, people are on their phones or driving, they're listening to something, right? Or running or biking, oftentimes they're listening to something. So very often when people are in bed at night, it is the first time of the day that they don't have anything competing right. for their attention. And the mind can say, aha, now's my chance. Let me ambush you and bring you to all the things that are concerning or worrying. Yeah, yeah. I've been running in the background the whole time you've been doing the stuff that's really interesting. How long, how long does it take to, to start? Well, you, I mean, you answered that a little bit already. Like some people seem to latch on to this and, and have benefits quickly and others, maybe not as much. Is there, is there an average amount of time that you see like people start to like get these benefits, whether it is be sleeping or less anxiety or, you know, all the stuff we've talked about. It is so variable because it depends so much on the degree of symptoms or distress somebody is in at the start, how long it's been going on. So if you take somebody who started to have difficulty with sleep and anxiety three months ago, that's really different than 30 years ago. And I see that whole gamut, right? Um, what I will say is that most of the research trials that look at CBT for anything span from at the short end, six weeks, which is the typical CBT for insomnia, to maybe 12 to 16 weeks, which is a more typical protocol for depression or anxiety. You know, at the end of that time, it's not usually the case. Well, I should say that differently. By the end of that six to 16 weeks, there are discernible decreases in symptoms or improvements in functioning or quality of life. And usually over follow-up, people continue to improve. So people haven't usually gained all of the benefit in that time, but they've usually gained some substantial benefit. So again, it depends on the problems they're coming in with, how long they've been around, how entrenched they are, not only in terms of time, but severity, um, and how engaged they are in the treatment. So one thing we haven't talked about yet is that with CBT and ACT, it, you're not gonna go into therapy and just talk for the 50 minutes and then leave and then come back in a week later and just talk for the 50 minutes. You should be leaving with some specific goals that you're gonna be working on and strategies that you're gonna practice. And if you practice, then you're gonna get more benefit than if you don't. And that may sound really obvious, um, but it makes a really big difference in the treatment outcome and the very symptoms we're trying to treat may be what keeps somebody from doing the practice. So I know one of your other questions was how much do you need a trained professional versus can you do this self-help? And I think it does depend a lot on how much you can self-motivate to do the work because there are lots of good workbooks, self-help books out there, apps, websites that can guide you through and teach you the skills. But if you're depressed enough, you might have a lot of thoughts like, what's the point? It's hopeless. Nothing's going to help anyway. And you may really benefit from a therapist who can help hold the hope for you and get you to suspend disbelief. And hey, can we just do an experiment and have you practice these skills for four weeks and see what happens? You don't have to believe they're going to help. You know, So having a therapist that can help you 
um, get out of your own way and actually make use of the skills might be really important if the symptoms themselves are getting in the way of making use of the treatment. That makes a lot of sense. I guess, I guess my, my final question on, on this specifically for the audience and, and this is something I hear an awful lot and experienced myself is that, you know, some of this is, is novel with the hormone changing. You know, you talk to many women who cool as cucumbers, not anxious, not fearful, barreling down mountains on mountain bikes, you know, all the different things. And then all of a sudden it's like anxiety out of nowhere that they've never had fear out of nowhere that they've never had, like just stuff. And they're just like, ah. um, when, when you're talking about a hormonally driven or at least a hormonally t- tuned uh, bit of emotions, how, how much can we override or at least, you know, turn down with these therapies? It's such a great question. And it's really more that you're not exacerbating or feeding into it. I think this circles back to something we were talking about earlier, because if you have this wave of fear and you've not been prone to that before, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, it must really be danger. Or you're thinking, or what's wrong with me? Like, I mean, that's what people end up thinking. I had a very good friend and like something she would have gone down a million times and it really wasn't even that frightening on a mountain bike. And she was paralyzed and she's like, this sucks. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so if that person can say, oh, right, this is hormones. And then have that compassion. This sucks because it used to be so thrilling or exciting for me to go down a pitch like this or this kind of technical terrain. And now I'm just terrified. And then if you can connect with your values, like what, what really matters to me here? And it might be, you know what, this is likely to be a pretty short period. Why torture myself? This isn't really working towards any particular value or goal. If it's not fun for me, why am I going to do it? Or it might be quite the opposite. It might be, I don't want this to you know, get the better of me. This is a really important part of my life in this way, that way, the other way. And what I need to know is that this is a misfiring of my fear system. I'm not actually any less skilled or able to handle that terrain than I was three months or three years ago. I don't need to listen to that fear signal. I can acknowledge it. I can have some self-compassion that this is hard. And maybe I can even say, oh, right, the physiology, you know, in the past, this beating heart was excitement, thrill. Now I'm putting this fear. But really, can I, can I try to embrace this more as excitement? Not because I'm trying to delude myself, but because I know it's just the hormones talking. No, no, no. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes an awful lot of sense. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I will do that. I'll talk back to that, that feeling. And then I'll, I'll do something else and just start counting. I'll do something like I'll start doing a, I'll start counting backwards or something. Like I try to like take my head somewhere else completely. But. Right. And I think that's also that good example of how much do we want people to be getting into that kind of restructuring? Because if every single time you have a misfiring of the fear system, you have to go through this entire dialogue. <laughs> Everyone else is down the trail and you're like, I'll be with you in a minute. Just, exactly. <laughs> just a second. But at yeah. some point you want to be able to shift to just, oh, right. That's the hormones talking, which is more that diffusion, the separation. Oh, that's the hormones talking. I don't need to listen. Let me hit go. 
And either way, just to be clear for everybody listening, whatever you say is fine. Whatever your answer at that time is fine. I mean, I had Nancy Fagan. She's a rock climber. So we're talking, there's consequence, right? You know, and she will be like, this is just my, not my day. Like today, my brain is not there. And that's okay. And that's okay. You know, that's okay too. I mean, it, like I would say in smaller consequence times, you can do that. And you'd be like, okay, I'm going to like talk back and just, and that might give you another you know, if, if you if you have a successful trip down the trail after you've talked back to your fear, then that's, you know, that's a check in the wind column and, and, and it might enable you to do that more easily in simple situations. But also don't beat yourself up if you feel like, eh, my brain's just not here today, right? Absolutely. And also remember, yeah. we need to listen to the communication from our emotions. And sometimes when you have fear or anxiety, it really is telling you that it's not safe for you to do it with whatever state you're in, in that moment. Right. So you don't want to go down, you know, terrain that even if you've mastered it in the past, if you don't think you're in the right place to get down safely, it is a win for you to not go down it. Yes. A hundred percent because you're going to be tense. And when you're tense, what do we know happens? You're more likely to have mistakes. So yeah. No, it's, it's very interesting. Is there anything that you thought about this whole realm that we haven't covered yet? Um, I guess the only thing that comes to mind when you just ask that is sometimes people do misconstrue this as, oh, it's all in your head and all you need to do is change the way you're thinking about it. And that makes it, A, seem like it's your fault and be like, it's easy. And neither of those things are true. These are just all interconnected. We can't control what pops into our mind any more than we can control what we're feeling emotionally. What we can do is influence the way we respond to it. So if you're having that catastrophic thought, you can feed it, fuel it, believe it, or you can say, oh, it's just a thought. We don't want to be sending the message that, oh, you need to control what comes into your mind because we know we, we really can't do that. It's more a response to it that we're working with when we're doing the CBT. Well, that's our show. Come back next week for my conversation with dietitian Diana Reed. We go into menopausal weight gain, including the root causes, the potential benefits, and you heard that right, benefits, and what we can do to help manage our body composition during this time of life. You won't want to miss that conversation. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.